0: Hello, and welcome to the Tea Leaves podcast, where we sit down to have an ongoing conversation on the Indo-Pacific century, brought to you by The Asia Group. Hello, I'm Kurt Campbell.
1: And I'm Rich Verma. Each episode will bring you into the discussion with the most prominent policymakers, artists, journalists, business and thought leaders driving the Indo-Pacific from New Delhi to Tokyo. Today, we are excited to continue our conversation with Jake Sullivan. Our listeners should note that this is the second part of a two-part series. If you have yet to listen to our first episode with Jake, we would highly encourage you to do so. There's no one better or more interesting than Jake Sullivan. So Jake, we've now talked quite a bit on
0: the general theory and sort of overarching framework and philosophy of foreign policy. I want to draw you to, to our region a little bit where Rich and I spend most of our time a powerful emerging debate which you and I Rich have played a role in at least on the sidelines is how to think about the relationship with China going forward. You know, we've just come out of a almost 40-year period in which the watchword of the relationship was engagement and now we're beginning a debate about, you know, what does the path ahead look like? How how do you think about that?
2: Yeah, you know, I'm nervous about Um, how we've all agreed that what we had done before needs to change, but we don't have a clear picture of what we should be doing instead. That is a recipe for drifting into first competition for competition's sake, and then ultimately a cycle of confrontation. So getting more competitive, getting uh, more clear-eyed about the challenge China presents... And the steps the United States needs to take to deal with that challenge, I'm 100% on board with that. But defining what a sustainable strategy is that isn't just kind of loose words or abstractions, that to me is the big challenge before us. And that's the what you and I have been working through, and um, we have a piece coming out in Foreign Affairs soon that tries to actually go through systematically the major domains of U.S.-China competition, the military, the economic, the political, global governance, and, and give, put some meat on the bones. I mean, one of the points that we make, which I think is a really important one, is the word of the day, you, you talked about the word of the day for 40 years being engagement. Now the word of the day is, quote-unquote, strategic competition. And for those people who are listening, anytime you see the word strategic before some other phrase, it's kind of a tell that the people using it don't really know what they intend to mean. <laughs> so, right. so strategic patience is a popular word, which basically means we don't know what we want to be doing, but, or even really when, but I guess we're going to have to wait a while. And strategic ambiguity means we have no idea what we want to say and strategic competition means we want to compete but we don't know how so we're just going to say it's strategic.
0: Jake that's a powerful strategic point. Thank <laughs> you.
2: Thank you. That that's that's my strategic analysis.
0: Yes. <laughs> so so Jake do you, I look I share your anxiety and worry about this but mine has to do as much as anything else with the what are the necessary political conditions associated with a big rethink of foreign policy, right? So you look at those periods where there were big debates around the League of Nations in the United States, around the beginning of containment, 1947, 1948, they were actually quite challenging periods in which a degree they're not dissimilar in some respects to what's going on now but usually those periods are filled with turmoil they last for a period of time there's often a domestic component of demagoguery or concern associated with that so i i see what's happening right now in terms of the u.s china relationship which is we can't wish china away like a lot there's a lot of like we're just gonna Go back to a certain like China is a large, dominant player on in the international scene, and we're going to have to contend with that. I don't. I don't think there's any choice but to really to confront that head on. But I'm struck by. You know, there has always been a floor to U.S.-China relationship, but we've mm. taken that floor. We've we've renovated the house, and I don't see a bottom there. And so I do agree that competition is the watchword, but I think we're heading, unless we're very careful and think much more strategically about it, to a period in which which every issue in our relationship is contended.
2: Yeah, you know, it's interesting looking at the domestic dynamics at play in the United States on this relationship. First thing is, I don't believe today that the American people have some fixed view of China as an enemy of the United States. So there's not a huge amount of pressure coming upward from below that we need to completely take on China as the next Soviet Union. I think the American people think they cheat on trade, we should do something about that and, you know, we should get tougher so they don't take more of our jobs, but it's it's more confined to a a sense of their impact on our economy than some larger question about great power competition that we concern ourselves with in the foreign policy community. But the security community across the intelligence professionals, the diplomatic professionals, military professionals have gotten increasingly hard edged on this. And so they I, will be serving up more and more, whether the issue is Huawei or it's AI or it's the South China Sea, to the people an argument which says you should see China this way. And then the other dynamic that I worry about is there's kind of something in it for everyone to get really tough on China. Yeah. So for progressives, having China as the great threat is a is a good argument for all kinds of massive domestic investment. You want early childhood education, well, the Chinese are doing it, we have to do it too, mm. kind of thing. Yeah, Obviously for the right. Um, and then when you don't have... A center kind of holding around engagement because the evidence suggests that that's not a sustainable strategy going forward. It leads me to think that the arrow is pointing in a direction of an increasingly hard line approach to China. And the answer can't be to just stand athwart that and say, no, stop, it's all fine. It has to be, okay, let's point all those energies in a productive direction. And that requires. More than just some general frame, it requires getting down to brass tacks on particular issues and saying, what are our problems and how do we manage for them in the economic domain and the security domain and so forth.
1: Jake, I want to take you back again, uh, back to your experience in the State Department and also your experience in the presidential campaign of of 2016. I think we, we probably first met in the summer of 2008 when you were doing debate prep for President Obama. We were writing our little policy papers. But then you probably no one closer to Secretary uh, Clinton at the State Department. You probably logged more miles than, in your time there than anyone that I know in, in the department. I think you were on every trip that she took and then you took additional trips uh, yourself and then as uh, national security advisor to the vice president. Can you um, just give us a sense of, of what that experience was like those four years? Do you have a most memorable trip? Do you have a worst trip Uh, I mean, you really saw uh, so much that the American people will never see, not only of challenges, but the incredible work that our people are doing around the world.
2: Yeah, you know, it's interesting. My overriding memory of that period was getting onto and off of a plane, blue and white plane that said United States of America on the side, and thinking God, I'm proud to work for this country and, and what we can do in the world. And yeah, we screw up. And yeah, we fall short. And yeah, our rhetoric gets ahead of our actions. But you know what? At the end of the day, we are out there trying to solve problems. And we've got a whole lot of incredibly smart and talented people who never get exposed to the public, who get demonized as Washington bureaucrats or whatever, who are just busting their butt to improve America's security, and to help people around the world. And I really just had this deep sense of pride, and I have such a hard time today squaring that with what I see with the face that America is presenting to the world today. In terms of a, I don't know if it's a favorite trip, but a trip where I was really kind of deeply reminded of just how human the experience of working in the government is, same as in any office, including like, you know, the office on the NBC television show. It has right. elements of that. <laughs> um, we were in in Egypt in November of 2012 trying to negotiate a ceasefire in Gaza, um, which is a recurring episode in American <laughs> foreign policy, <laughs> right. of course. And um, we had been in Israel, and we'd gotten some uh, offers from the Israelis to bring to the Egyptians who were negotiating on behalf of Hamas. And so I was meeting with the Egyptian national security advisor, and he had just come back from a meeting with Hamas in which he said, okay, Hamas is prepared to meet the terms that the Israelis have just laid down. And and I said, okay, um, great. Well, the Israelis are prepared. Obviously, they've proposed the terms, so they're prepared. So we look at each other and we say, okay, well, what do we do now? And he said, well, I think we have a ceasefire. So like, okay, so how does that happen? And I said, well, I think we have to pick a time to put the ceasefire in place. Maybe we should say in a couple hours. I don't know. And he looks at his watch. He says, how's, how's 7, 7 p.m., you know, for the for the ceasefire. Right. So that works for me. That's good. Uh, sure. And uh, he says, hold on just one minute. And he goes to the corner. He rolls out his prayer mat. And he sits down and says a prayer. And so I kind of am standing there a little awkwardly. And I do a sign of the cross just, you know, sort of instinctively. <laughs> and then we go to Secretary Clinton and the foreign minister, and we say, we can go out and announce this in, at seven. And Secretary Clinton's like, did, the, did Hamas say seven? Or, and and no, we just, that, that was the time we felt was most proper for the start of the ceasefire. And that's just how it is. And then there they are on TV, and yeah. the rockets stop. It worked. And you can do that. now. Now, that's just two guys who are trying to figure it out, and you have both been in these situations in incredibly high stakes diplomacy where you're looking around and thinking, isn't there some larger apparatus? Okay. There's no other room. This is it. Yeah. Uh, and so that one really stood out to me.
0: Can I I gotta say one thing? So, Rich, your question about like these trips. So I gotta tell you what what to be on the other side of that was. So so it's a little bit like uh, like if if you're the person that does the Asia stuff. Jake's doing all the trips so you're competing with all these other right. trips and so so when they get on the flight and they're going we're going to you know um some small east village timor. east timor <laughs> right. for a visit they're all talking like w- with great you know, kind of memories about their trips to the Middle East or Europe. And they're never looking forward to your region. And I always <laughs> felt bad. I always had a lot of resentment. Like, they weren't enjoying my trips. Well,
2: what's funny about that is that, that a trip we took to Israel and Egypt to deal with the Gaza ceasefire, Secretary Clinton actually peeled off of a trip to Cambodia and Burma um, to Kurt's trip. Right. And... Um, and I just remember thinking, "Thank God, there's a war on somewhere else, so we can get the heck out of here." Right, you know, right. uh, no,
0: I'm just kidding. Yeah, that's course, right. But, but I, I have to say, work, uh, Rich, working with Jake, Jake was kind of the heavy artillery, kind of combination special forces. But, you know, we all, you two, we all had chances to work on special things with with him. And I got the support of Jake and senior folks on the secretary's team to start this process on engaging in Burma and Myanmar. Back then, it seemed so hopeful and exciting. And uh, we reached this stage where it was just, you know, like if we if we went forward, it required the support of the White House. And Jake and I went over to see some of the president's team. And I remember I was so agitated because I knew we had to do it. And it was hard for me to kind of figure out how to explain it in a way where I didn't, like, yell, we have to do this right. or something like right. that. And Jake calmly, carefully, with, with great skill, just explained why this was the right thing to do why the state department could be trusted um and that it would uh it would it would work for the nation as a whole i i that's one of my enduring memories of jake incredible gratitude that he took the ball at that moment from me and kind of got it done
2: well it's a good reminder the diplomacy we had to do within our own government yeah. was Probably of a level of sophistication and intensity as high as the yeah. diplomacy with we, we, the Chinese. That's and the called
0: Chinese in suit. academia. Uh, Bob Putnam, uh, professor at Harvard, wrote a great piece back in the late 1980s called "The
1: Two-Level Game Theory," right? And that's exactly right. what what we had to do. Let me uh, let me turn. Then you know, a- after six years or so, six plus years in the Obama administration, you went off and became the policy director for Secretary Clinton's campaign. And you did it all—not just foreign policy—that which must have been a whole new learning experience for you. We could have a whole separate podcast on the 2016 experience, and you know, and, and maybe one day you'll you'll uh, get through your therapy sessions right. and come yeah, back to
2: say I'd have to pay you three hundred bucks an hour or something. <laughs> come back and
1: that. do that, yeah. but I I do wonder. It has been two and a half years or so. As you think about kind of what went wrong. Uh, what went right? Things you would do over. Is there is there a way to, you know, summarize or think about kind of what you know? Not to quote the book, but what what happened? Uh, kind yeah, of. Yeah, right. Yeah, exactly.
2: right. You know, I think about this as you might imagine. All the time, and um, being Irish, I believe in just endless recrimination and <laughs> a lot of guilt, know, <laughs> yeah. uh, wallowing and looking backward, and it never makes sense to give that up and actually look forward and do anything. You just have to live in the sense of tragedy of the past. Um, so I'm well built for for this exercise. You know, I'll offer one kind of larger strategic observation and one tactical observation. The larger strategic observation is that I wish that we had helped Secretary Clinton define an overall campaign message that was much more rooted in just who she was and who she had been historically. Something basically about kids. That her whole campaign was about America's kids. It was for our kids. And You know, that sounds a little hokey and not big enough for a presidential campaign, but at the end of the day, what a message is really supposed to be about is the motivation of the person and what they're trying to do and what they've been trying to do their whole career. And that was one area where focus groups and people who were shown her ads and were shown her speeches felt, I may not completely buy Hillary on everything, but I buy her on that. That has been a lifelong commitment. So I think we let her down on the kind of larger... That larger issue, and I I take my share of responsibility for that. On the more tactical side, when the Comey letter dropped, we thought our job, and this is 10 days before the election, we thought our job was to convince everyone, it's all fine, don't worry. You know, those people bailing water out of the boat over there, pay no attention to them. We're we're sailing along, just, (laughs) just okay. That's the natural thing for a campaign to do. In fact... I think if we had said, this is a disaster of unmitigated proportions and we're going to lose, we would have won. That actually, because wow. people woke up on election day thinking, oh, of course, Hillary, she's got in the bag. She's going to win. It had an impact on the turnout that, in my view, certainly uh, reached the... 70 odd thousand people across three states um, who made the difference in this election. That 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 if people had thought, oh my gosh, Donald Trump will be elected president, he would not have been elected president.
1: That's a fascinating insight. And again, now that you've gone through that experience, what does it say about your own personal kind of views about American politics? Maybe not only generally, but for, for you specifically, and I guess I'm asking kind of, has yeah, that increased no, your interest I, or? Look,
2: it's a great question because I, in thinking about moving home to Minnesota, I had in mind the possibility of one day running for office. In a way, I still would like to someday because I think it, it is such an important thing for people of good faith and and kind of patriotic will to do, but... I would say the 2016 experience definitely made me less inclined to do it anytime soon, just because the it was so
1: bruising, Yeah,
2: and the you know I'm I'm somebody who um, you know tries to approach things from a position of logic and reason and what's what's reasonable, what's fair. I learned a lot of that from former bosses like Justice Breyer, who is the ultimate reasonable man. You know. And politics is so not that, you know? <laughs> and so it's like, for me, I'm a bit of a fish out of water on that front. And this is a conversation Kurt and I have had many times um, about what it, what it means to actually put yourself forward for office. But I don't want to, uh, you know, I don't want to give up on the thought of it, but it may be that my offer in the, in the realm of public service lies in a different place than
0: I want to ask you a question about a point that Vice President Biden made not long ago. I don't want to put you on the spot, but it does strike me as an important potential consideration. With some fervency, he argued that many Republicans that he knows and he's worked with for decades, both in the Senate and elsewhere, are yearning to return to more normal, a more predictable and sort of civil set of interactions. And he thinks that if there is a a Democrat that's more moderate that emerges, obviously he's arguing for his candidacy, then our politics will return to something that is, you know, a, a little bit less brutal, a little bit less Hobbesian. I fear that the reverse is the case. That in an environment where so much is being contested questions about trade about you know racial identity around borders you go down the list that the only thing that really holds that party together is the sense of something almost verging on hatred for democrats and that that we could find ourselves in a situation that republicans if if democrats prevailed in elections that the opposition just based on sheer, you know, identity politics just from the outset will set in. And it won't be the kind of collegial or at least um, productive governing experience that I think was more common in the 1980s than it certainly is in the knots or the, the teens. What's your sense on that? Well, to put it pretty simply, I agree with your
2: diagnosis, and I agree with Vice President Biden's prescription. That is to say, I do think that the Republicans are going to get more brutal than they even were vis-a-vis Obama when they said that their entire priority was just trying to beat him or undermine him. Uh, I think it is going to get worse, but I agree with Vice President Biden that we have no choice but to do our best to peel off the few people we can, to build the coalitions we can, to find the points of common ground we can. So. There's a very real possibility in 2021 that you have a Democratic president and a Republican Senate. If you wanna raise $1 of revenue to do any of the things that any of the Democratic candidates have talked about, you will need Republican votes, plain and simple. So to all of my friends in my party who say, we gotta get down and when they go low, we go lower kind of thing. (laughs) I ask, "What, what is your strategy? Well, you know, Bernie Sanders would say, well, we'll have a revolution. But like, no, really. In 2021, when you're trying to pass something, how are you going to do it mm-hmm. if you're not making an effort to do things in a bipartisan way? I just, I, I'm clear-eyed that I I don't think it's going to be the Tip O'Neill, Ronald Reagan halcyon days. But, and that even the Newt Gingrich, Bill Clinton era is going to feel like, you know, this positive uh, bipartisan world, you know, yeah. kind of thing. <laughs> But I, don't, but I think Vice President Biden, who believes this with deep conviction, is 100% right. There is no other way. And that's not just true from the practicality of passing
0: things. So you think that his sentiment is based on a deep practicality, not a sentimentality or a naivete about what's possible?
2: I think he believes that personal relationships, if you invest in them and build them, can make a difference. I think he does believe that. And a lot of people in our party don't. But I don't think that he is at all uh, naive about Mitch McConnell or the Koch brothers or Sheldon Adelson. And I think this is a guy with a ramrod-stiff backbone on that kind of thing, and he's going to fight for it. But, you know, they did get the, the votes they needed to pass the stimulus. It was three, but it was enough. And without those three, it wouldn't have happened. They did get the votes they needed from a Republican Congress to raise taxes six hundred and sixty billion dollars on rich people, which is the first significant tax increase since the early nineties, so it can these things can happen even in this world. But it does mean you got to work with these folks. You got to. You got. You got no choice. And it's really easy and convenient to say, "Nope, we're just going to punch them in the nose till we win." But that does not feel like it's serving the cause uh, of helping America's working families because you're not actually going to deliver anything for them.
1: Jake, thank you so much for being here, for your service, for being a a great friend and colleague to us and and so many others over the years. We're really now looking forward to the next chapter, whatever that is. And thank you to our listeners,
0: as well as Jake. Please be sure to rate us on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. We'll see you next time on The